0: Welcome to the DadaCast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one-chapter week. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Brennaby Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 139th episode of the Not a Cast titled Inferno Part 1, an analysis of a clash of kings Davos 3 in which the Baratheon fleet sails up to the Blackwater to. De- Victory. Am I remembering this correctly from my last read of the Clash of Kings? I don't know. Can you correct me if I'm wrong?
1: Flawless victory, to quote the greatest Oof. saga of our times, Mortal Kombat. Flawless victory.
0: I was really worried about it this time. I was. A, I, I thought know. I remembered something about wildfire explosion and dad was almost dying and Stannis being defeated, but I guess that must have been just a bad, faulty memory of mine at work. Here.
1: Oh, Jeff, you
0: with your crazy ideas. What will you think of next? <laughs> Good thing you can't uh-huh. read, folks. Oh, this is going to be quite the episode and quite the chapter, folks. So strap in. Again, this is part one of A Clash of Kings Tavos 3. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our not-a-small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timbob, Troubleshooter of Systems, the designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark M, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Captain of the War Galley Nightwolf, the ship that stalks the Seven Seas, and Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Trident Summoner, the Blade that Brings the Deep Ones. Sir Keith J, Master of Whispers Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archbaser June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, War of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Little Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bane Fort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant, to the Hand of the King, Lady Zine of Valyrium, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Danum, Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Go Ravens, Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Doran, Kelly, Worthy, Submissions of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Adamus, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, the King's Cook, Noli oly Master of Cannoli, Sir of Sorcedelica, Low Energy Dent, True Master of the Bainfort, and True Master of Coin, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Beyoncé's favorite stand, and Bastard of Chromatica, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies, and General Dems, Haldiver, the Waiter for t Well, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron, Eye. Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town. Benares of House Golgarian, the first of her name. Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art. The Evoric, Queen of Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft. Queen of Monochrome, of the Great, Game of Thrones, Portraits of the Realm. Lady Realist of the Seven Kings, Blender of Paints, Mickey of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Lord Adam T. Lady Alexander of Tarth. Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Redfield, Defender of the Litter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians. Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North. Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes Lord Peter. Lady. Ashley, the dead shepherd reborn, preacher of the poor fellows, Marshall Harrison, absent shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, the cadaver king, and horror of Heron Hall, Olaf, proponent of establishing a feudal pseudo democratic system of great councils where on every count votes. Sir Tim, the knight who is guided by voices, Lord Nick, Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rigor Turgain, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Lord Jean, the splendid master of coin, Ward of Tampa Bay, Lady Anna, the lovely Castellan, Pat Ironwood, the Blood Royal and Guardian of the Bone Way. Lord Charles Terrell of Highgarden, Lord Paramount of the Bander, Defender of the Marches, High Marshal of the Reach, War of the South, and the Heir of House Terrell. Luke, Lord of Loneleaf and the Pillar of Autumn. Squid Pro Quo, Master of Zorce, Joe Snow, King of the north and Protector of the Tri-State. Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship, Arrogance. Squire Matt S, Future Matt S, the one who will bring balance to the Kingdoms b Queen Beyond the Wall, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Blackberry the Bold, Champion of the Feel-Good Times, and Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Wardeness of the South, and patron of free-wheeling bisexuals. Love saying all those names every single week, but yeah, lots of names. Love it. It's awesome. Thank you all very much for your support.
1: Thank you to our counselors as always.
0: And our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three ducking novels, histories, interviews, the windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes
1: from Lord Travis, our master of ships on the small council, who asks, Davos is often appropriately compared to Odysseus, a loyal lieutenant in Greek mythology, depicted in Homer's Iliad as an advisor and counselor to the Greeks, in their decade-long war campaign against the Trojans. There's even apt comparisons between Thanos and Davos's relationships-slash-personalities and Achilles and Odysseus', as well as many plot points in Odysseus's journey in the Homeric epics, being shipwrecked, fleets being driven off course by storms, being tempted by the gods in the sea, encountering cannibals, as some major examples. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus finally returns home, almost forgotten, to find his wife fielding suitors and his kingdom being taken away from him. Odysseus famously strings a bow as part of the proof of who he is. So how do you think Davos in the endgame will match Odysseus? Could we see someone from the Golden Company holding Cape Wrath? Might a Stormlord suitor move in to take what is rightfully the Onion Knights? Will Maria struggle to remember the face of her husband? How might Davos prove himself to her? Do you think he'll return to his home? Or will he serve King Bran as depicted in the show? And that's a terrific question from Travis. I think, you know, the the Davos-Odysseus comparison has been noted before, especially by Stephen Atwell. But, uh, uh, Jeff, you've written well about about Davos' potential future plot points uh, very well. Before, what do you think? How does how is Davos going to line up with Odysseus?
0: So I love all of the, the Odysseus parallels we have here with Davos, and I think that's just a wonderful thing that George does in, in, in creating the character of Davos. And I think that's a clear inspiration as well as Stannis having some Agamemnon like traits, as many people have talked about as well. So we have several characters from that were associated with the Iliad and then continued on to the odyssey, which are, are were inspirations, I think for George R. Martin here. so this is, this is an excellent question first off. So props, if you're looking to ask questions as a sworn sword or high level patron, this is the way to do it. This is great. <laughs> so detailed and awesome. So awesome job, Travis. Um, I think that Daos is likely going to be returning back to Cape Wrath as similar as as Odysseus did in in the Odyssey. And I think we're going to find a bunch of like brigands and... fucking assholes in the form of the Golden Company sitting there drinking his booze and trying to like sleep with his wife. Now, when we get to Ariane's second Winds of Winter sample chapter, we have something similar-ish happening when Arianne visits Castle, I want to say, is it Mistwood? Where the house, where House Mertons is, where Lady Mertens is, and she's like, yeah, these guys, they show up here and they've basically just rape all the small folk women, they drink all my stuff, and they steal all my food. Like, these guys are assholes. And they're like, no, 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 we're not that way. All the, all the girls, they just, they were totally like into it. And they're like we convinced them, and you're like, no, guys, we 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 have we have seen sellswords swords in action throughout, especially in *A Dance with Dragons*, but throughout A *Song of Ice and Fire*, I am sure the consent was not at the top of their their mind there. So I think that's that's supposed to give us a foretaste of what we're going to see with Davos Seaworth and him having to return back home to the Stormlands to try and. To, to try and take these, throw these assholes out who are despoiling his lands, and trying to seduce his wife. Because a lot of them, as we find out from A Dance with Dragons, they're looking for taking their lands back. And if they can't take their lands back, they're looking for secondary houses that they could potentially get in, get in good with, and 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 bury their way into, which is a way that that some folks in, in the past have got have ascertained power. So that is what I think will happen in Davos' story in The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. I, I think when you We get before that, though... This is, what I, this is what I'd like to have – let me rephrase it. I think this is what I'd like to have happen is that Davos had, takes on a, a a clear Odysseus parallel. But at the same time, I mean, there has to be something between Davos and Stannis. And I, I feel like it must have been a long time ago we answered a question about whether Stannis and Davos will ever meet up again after after A Dance with Dragons or after really after A Storm of Swords because the last time they actually saw each other was, was Davos' sixth chapter from A Storm of Swords. So I, I, I don't know. I, I know that – I think you think that they're going to go – Davos is going to end up staying in the north. Is thats is that correct? correct, or am I mistaken in remembering that about your, your belief system?
1: I think my belief system, indeed. I think <laughs> I think Davos has to have some kind of at least he needs to at least learn some information about what went down with Stannis. I don't think he's going to outright abandon the cause. I think it's more just that the cause is kind of going to fall, fall apart while he's gone. And then, yeah, I do think he will ultimately turn to home. You know, George has talked about his love of scouring of the, sh- of the Shire, and there's also, of course, the great ending to Lord of the Rings when you know, when when Frodo, the structurally the protagonist has moved on, but Sam comes back to his home and says, well, I'm back as, as though the whole thing has just been this journey for him to get back to his family and home. And I think George might echo that with Davos. The Odysseus parallels makes total sense. And I think the, the Golden Company in the region just kind of kind of fits that like a glove. I, I kind of feel like, you know, Odysseus is kind of Violent when he returns home <laughs> in the Odyssey. And Davos just doesn't strike me as like, I think like the twist might be like Davos is just too tired and heartsick to do anything really dramatic when he gets there. And I think he might, I think, you know, I, I think he's going to get his family back and his lands back, but I think it's going to be more of an anti climax, you know, more than anything else. Um, and yeah, in terms of like the more emotional stuff, I do, I do hope, you know, Mario Seaworth is among the more prominent. Characters we haven't met yet, you know. It's like Howland Reed, Willis Terrell, and Mario Seaworth. So I do hope she gets one scene where it's it's bittersweet. Like, of course, I think she's going to be so happy that Davos is alive and has come home. But I wonder, I wonder specifically, probably that his two remaining sons are not going to recognize him, and I wonder if that's going to be like the heartbreaking kind of note we leave Davos on. Is like he's he's gone through so much and he made it back, but like he's a stranger here now because he's just been gone gone so long.
0: No, I love that a lot. I think you have to have the bittersweet ending, which as George talked about, is going to be. Sp- Front and center for for Davos Seaworth, and you know, in the in the case of Davos and um, and and Maria and his kids, him like not having his kids recognize him, but him making it home safely would kind of be that bittersweet ending because you have that really moving letter that Davos writes to Maria in his final Dance with dragons chapter where he apologizes mm-hmm. for not being as good of a man as he could have been to to his wife, and it's and it's the Girls Gone Cannon podcast has, has been talking about really well. Davos has actually not been all that great of a husband to to Maria. Uh, with his uh, infidelities and with his uh, constantly being away and leaving his his family in danger in the Stormlands as he sails off with Stannis, his true husband, I guess, so to speak. Right.
1: Like, remember, I was just thinking, like, what you know, What does Jamie say to Catelyn? Ned loved Robert more than he ever loved you. And I think the same thing is happening here. Ultimately, Davos loves Stannis most. Mm-hmm. And, like, you mm-hmm. know, there's obviously, you know, there's some intense bonding. Like, you know, and Robert never chopped off Ned's fingers. Like, Davos is, right. like, I think psychologically, there's like a – a weird bond that gets created there that Davos can't really shake. But I think the same bittersweet dynamic is that, you know, you were doing all this for your family, but where's your family? They're not with you. And like, I think, I think any, you know, anyone who's ever worked long hours to support their family or, you know, gone overseas to, to do their job and take care of their family. I think, I think, I think can relate to to that kind of bittersweet possibility for Davos.
0: I think it's, it's a very relatable sense as I'm going to talk about here when we get to the episode proper, which is a, uh, yeah, it's definitely something else.
1: So thank you so much to Lord Travis for the excellent question. If you'd like to ask us questions, we answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, merch, access to the Notta Slack, and bonus
0: episodes. Absolutely. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our next bonus episode is our annual holiday gift for everyone. And we'll be doing none other than a full analysis of... The Blackwater! Wait, wait, aren't we doing the Blackwater today? Yes, we are doing the Blackwater today, (laughs) but we are actually going to be doing our first ever full analysis of a Game of Thrones episode. That is Season 2, Episode 9 from The Thrones Show, which is arguably the best episode of Game of Thrones in no small part because it was written by George R. R. Martin himself. So that is going to be out for all of our patrons next week, starting on the 21st, which is the first day of winter. And then the week after that, after Christmas on the 28th, for all of our – for everyone, for, because this is our joy – this is our present for, of, of great joy, which is to all people, as was the gift of Jesus Christ to all of the world. Tender religion, and mild. <laughs> Tender and wild, absolutely. Just like That's the Battle it's... of
1: Blackwater. But no, obviously, everyone loves this episode of Game of Thrones. You know, I think this is this is even if other you know people have their other individual favorites. I think this is the consensus favorite episode of Game of Thrones is Blackwater, and I think it's 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 aged well, and I can't wait to revisit it with the book
0: chapters uh, fresh in our mind. So that'll be a hoot. It will be so much fun, cannot wait to do that. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Davos, he had successfully helped Melisandre liberate Storm's End from the clutches of the evil terrorist, Sir Courtney Penrose. I think I have that correct, if I'm remembering Davos 2. Close enough. Good enough, okay. Let's find out what happens as Davos attempts to continue liberating shit in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings, Davos 3, Part 1. Oh, I'm so excited. Blackwater Bay was rough and choppy, whitecaps everywhere. Black Betha rode the flood tide, her sail cracking and snapping at each shift of wind. Wraith and Lady Maria sailed beside her, no more than twenty yards between their hulls. His sons could keep a line. Davos took pride in that. Hold on to that pride, Davos. You ain't going to be holding those suns after today, or after this night, rather. Davos hears war horns across the sea, and he orders the sail brought up and oarsmen to man their oars. Sailors attempt to move to the task, pushing past soldiers who were packed in tight, packed in tight aboard the top deck of the ships. They were going to oars now, just as Sir Emery Florent had ordered, so as not to expose their cloth sails to enemy artillery or fire. Davos looks to the southeast and sees Stannis' flagship Fury sailing with Imri in command, where once Stannis had commanded the assault on Dragonstone. Davos knows that ship, knows that the massive deck, the 300 oars, and how the ship was large enough for two catapults, one fore and one aft. The ship was also fast, or used to be, that is until Sir Imri the Slowass weighed the ship down with too many troops. But then the war horns are sounding again. Davos feels his missing fingertips tingling as he orders his ships to form a line. As the oarsmen drums pound, the three ships commanded by Seaworth men all dip oars into the water as Davos orders a slow cruise. Davos watches all of the ships get into position, but not as quickly as he would have liked. Some ships were lagging behind. Some of them, like the ship known as the Swordfish, please do remember that so- that ship's name—it's super important—are moving slowly due to bad leadership, in Davos's opinion. All the same, morale is high as the men are eager for battle and confident of victory, much the same as their commander, Lord High Captain Sir Emery Florent. Three days past, Sir Emery Florent had summoned all his captains to a war council aboard the Fury while the fleet lay anchored at the mouth of the Wend Water in order to acquaint them with his dispositions. Davos and his sons had been assigned a place in the second line of battle, well out on a dangerous starboard wing. A place of honor, Howard had declared, well satisfied with the chance to prove his valor. "'A place of peril,' his father had pointed out. "'His sons had given him pitying looks, even young Merrick. "'The Onion Knight was to be- has become an old woman. "'He could hear them, still a smuggler at heart.' "'Well, the last was true enough. "'Davos would make no apologies for it. "'Seaworth had a lordly ring to it, "'but deep down he was still Davos of Bottom, "'coming home to his city on its three high hills. "'He knew as much of ships and sails and shores "'as any man in the Seven Kingdoms, "'and had fought his share of desperate fights "'sword to sword on a wet deck.' But to this sort of battle he came a maiden, nervous and afraid. Smugglers do not sound war horns and raise banners. When they smell danger, they raise sail and run before the wind. Still, Davos of Flea Bottom. is this George's writing of an homage to Jennifer Lopez's Jenny from the Block. Now, Wikipedia, I looked this up, and Wikipedia indicates that A Clash of Kings came out four years before Jenny from the Block did. So when is George going to sue Jennifer Lopez for copyright infringement, I ask the question. All kidding aside, Davos would have done things a bit differently if he were running this goat rope of a clusterfuck of an operation. He would have sent ships to scout ahead instead of moving in heedlessly. Davos had advised as much, but Imri had dismissed him with an aristocratic over-the-nose look down upon Davos the Onion Knight. With four times as many ships as the boy kings, Sir Embry saw no need for caution or deceptive tactics. He had organized the fleet into ten lines of battle each each of twenty ships. The first two lines would sweep up the river to engage and destroy Joffrey's little fleet or the boys' toys, as Sir Emery dubbed them to the mirth of his lordly captains. Those that followed would land companies of archers and spearmen beneath the city walls, and only then join the fight on the river. The smaller, slower ships to the rear would ferry over the main part of Stannis' host from the south bank, protected by Salador San and his Lyseni, who would stand out in the bay in case the Lannisters had other ships hidden up along the coast, poised to sweep down on their rear. Davis admits that the need for speed was reasonable as the winds were against them, and they had lost ships on the voyage up. Moreover, Stannis Baratheon had probably reached the Blackwater Rush days ago. It was a shorter route via the King's Road than what they on the, on, the, on the sea were facing on the waters of Shipbreaker Bay, the Narrow Sea, and of course, Blackwater Bay." Meanwhile, the struggling clown car fleet had somehow managed to capture some fishing skips up on the sail up. Imri thinks this is good plunder, but Davos, dutiful as he always is, decides that the actual value is interrogating the fishermen as prisoners. He discovers that Tyrion is working on a boom chain to close the mouth of the river. The chain might even be complete by now. Davos found himself wishing that it had. If the river was close to them, Sir Emory would have no choice but to pause and take stock. Oh man, Davos, if you only knew. Davos shouts for everyone to stay logged online. No wait, I misread that in Clash of Kings Davos 3. He orders that all the ships stay in line. That makes more sense. The wind whips around him and he's thankful to not be a real fucking dumbass and wearing plate armor into battle like someone in charge of this fleet and someone in charge of a future fleet. But now all the ships finally lumber into a row and they are coming in on the flood tide. Unfortunately, the Lancers might have the advantage in that the Blackwater Rush is flowing out to them. The first line of ships might get decimated. Fortunately, Davos and his sons were in the second line. Fortunately. Davos looks ahead and sees the Red Keep dark against Lemon Sky with the the Blackwater below. Davos sees the... Davos sees the south shore of the Blackwater where Stannis' army was running around, getting ready to cross. Davos hears trumpets and prays a silent prayer for luck. And now Davos turns his attention to the order of the battle. And just to simplify it here, it's ten lines of twenty ships a line. Behind the battle line. Salder's son and his Lyseni comprise the rearguard, which Davos thinks is a huge fucking mistake. Oh! The call, call... That was a terrible call, horn sound. Whatever. The call rolled across white caps and churning oars from the forecastle of the Fury. Zimri so was sounding the attack. Awww. Is that how his horn sounds? I don't know. I don't really hear horns in the actual army. Oh, yeah. That's the sound of the horns, though. Get that attack going, baby. Davos orders a fast sail as everyone starts hooting and hollering, banging swords and spears against shields like a gaggle of West Virginians when their senator secures pork barrel spending to expand I-64 into 15,000 lanes. Davos looks for the boom chain, but he doesn't see it as the mouth of the river was open. Davos notices two new stone towers on opposite sides of the river, thinking that their position made them hard to attack. Stannis could only suppress them with archers, which was what he was doing. Something flashed down low where the dark water swirled around the base of the tower. It was sunlight on steel and it told Debussy with all he needed to know. A chain boom. And yet they have not closed the river to us. Why? He could make a guess to that as well, but there was no time to consider the question. A shout went from the ships ahead and the warhorns blew again and the enemy was before them. And that is a, and that's the synopsis for A Clash Kings Davos 3 Part 1. Man, I, you know, I get my jollies from like denying people like satisfaction, <laughs> but it does seem especially <laughs> cruel to cut the chapter off just before we get to the battle itself. But that allows us, you know, as professional podcasters to both analyze the battle plan and give the battle and money shot of the explosion our full attention next week. What did you think of this first part of the chapter, sir?
1: First of all, I can say how much I enjoy Jeff going. I mean, I'm a supervillain, but even I don't think this is a wise choice. Just end every synopsis that way. No, I mean, every Davos chapter is great, and this one is no exception. It's a perfect mixture of detailed battle descriptions and slow, creeping dread. It's like a Tom Hanks Every Man in World War II movie that gets cannibalized by a horror movie. The payoff comes next week, but it wouldn't be as effective nor as memorable without all the buildup George does in this part of the chapter. He's pulling a head fake in terms of tone, but all these details really do have to be there to complete the trap Tyrion springs at the end of the chapter. Nothing is extraneous. Davos himself might feel like he's just along for the ride, but his unique perspective allows us to understand exactly what Tyrion has done, as well as how poorly the commanders of the Baratheon fleet were prepared for any of it. As I said last week, George succeeds in every aspect of writing the Battle of Blackwater. And Davos 3 is, for my money, the best chapter in the battle. It's got everything I could want.
0: Some chapters, I, I'll be totally honest. Like some chapters, when I read them, I'm like, okay, this is a, this is an important chapter, but it's still a chapter that's setting up something more important down the road. This is not that chapter for 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 a Clash of Kings. This is this is the money shot for Davos' entire arc in a song of ice song of ice. In a clash of kings, at least. From the opening words of the chapter to the final, I think that George sinks us into a sensory experience. I could see those white caps, feel the salt spray, hear the wind whipping the sails. But it's the anticipation that I feel. I love how you're describing it as kind of this slow, creeping dread. It's, it's definitely that for me. But I have to admit, I always feel something else, too, when I'm reading this chapter. It's excitement. Is that the right word? I remember this feeling so well as a younger man on the eve of combat. I mean, the, the truth is that I wasn't one of those poor bastards down in Marsha in southern Afghanistan and being in the shit all the time in, in the war that I was allegedly in. But I remember what my much more limited exposures to combat and the anticip- anticipation of it felt like. You move into battle, senses alert as you scan the horizon. The adrenaline carries you, slows your senses. Your ears are suddenly hearing better. I it's weird to admit as much. The adrenaline carries you, slows your senses. I write that part That You stare at the horizon with dread and excitement, and then you recite the battle plan in your head, the turns you're going to make on the road ahead, the objective. You rehearse it in your brain the enemy's most probable course of action and their most dangerous course of action. That to me is, is here at, at, in Davos three at the Battle of the Blackwater because the Battle of the Blackwater is an amazing literary experience for me because as I've said before, George wrote one of the most realistic depictions of combat in modern fiction. That is until The Caution's Tale gets published next week or the week after that. It felt so real reading this battle that when I did it back in 2012, two years after my own brushes with war, that I really thought that George R. R. Martin was a, a Vietnam veteran and was writing his own experiences through a medieval context. That has to be a testimony, I think, to what George does in the Blackwater. Davos 3 catches me emotionally in the gut every time. And it catches me there because more than my own conflicted feelings in 2020 about battle and war, I feel Davos in this chapter more than anything else emotionally. I know this guy. He's not me. I'm not some amazing hero the way that Davos is. But he's definitely the motherfucker I'd follow into battle for sure. That visceral
1: kind of change-up that you were talking about definitely is a huge part of what makes this chapter work. Sansa five started within earshot of the battle and then moved inward to the castle within a castle of Magor's holdfast with Cersei. Davos three plunges the reader right back into it, the sudden shock of wind and water. It's supposed to make us uneasy to match Davos' mood. The water is rough, the wind howling in their sails, and yet Davos' sons hold the line. Sailing forward beside their father in his black Betha. He's proud of them. Davos takes comfort in that pride. It's a refuge as everything gets worse around him. In his first chapter, as Davos watched his gods burn and the gargoyles on Dragonstone seemed to stir in response, his thoughts flew to his sons, the better life Stannis had secured for them. That's been Davos' struggle in this book. He is increasingly uncomfortable with what Stannis is doing and asking of him, but unlike the nobleborn who can and will just jump ship to the Lannisters at some point, Davos is tied to Stannis, specifically. As he says, if Stannis falls, they will pull me down in an instant. His only hope for his family to rise to a more long-term secure position, jousting with the Valerians and marrying into the Celtigars, etc., as he said, is for Stannis to win this battle and take the throne. Jamie filled his head with thoughts of Circe when he was forced to watch Eris' descent. When Davos feels doubts, he looks to his sons to banish them. That makes it all the more tragic that four of his sons die in this battle, sacrificed to the very cause that was supposed supposed to, to secure their futures. Davos' pride turns to ash along with his ship and his boys. That pride is reborn in a storm of swords as shame, that he led such strong, smart sons to that hideous end. For the moment, though, the Seaworth clan hangs together. The Warhorns boom like monstrous serpents, as Devos describes them. Throughout this chapter, George describes the ships as though they are alive. This technique has multiple effects. First of all, it enhances the aura of the fantastical, hovering around the Team Stannis storyline. We had gargoyles seeming to move on Dragonstone, we had shadow babies at Storm's End, and now we have horns moaning like monstrous serpents. It's all very mystical and magical. Secondly, it enhances the tragedy when the wildfire strikes. You, you kind of mourn the ships as well as the people because they just keep yeah. being named and talked about like they're active combatants. You know, this, I mean, Joffrey mourns only the ships and not the people <laughs> as we're going to get into Tyrion 13. I think the reader is supposed to feel the loss of both. And thirdly, this captures how Davos feels. He knows these ships so well, like their people. He's like Abner in George's uh, vampire novel Fever Dream that we've been going through for patrons. Davos feels united with his fellow men through these ships, like this is how I, I get together with people. The drumbeat is like a heartbeat, he thinks, and his men are all pulling as one. They are united, a hive mind like the singers, as they call themselves, north of the wall that brand mates in A Dance with Dragons. And that kind of unity can be a positive thing. Look at Korin Halfhand's close-knit band and how they become more than the sum of their parts by how well they work together. But, you know, that kind of uh, we're all one heartbeat, we're all pulling together thing. That that also describes how the others operate, how they hold their human servants in thrall. The others have their heart and it just beats and commands all their servants like the House of the Undying.
0: As I was reading through the document, you were referencing half Halfhand. And it struck me that the Sansa Davos point of views of the horns and like the, the auditory experiences of war it kind of works similar to the way that the Night's Watch uses horns up in the wall and the reaction of the wildlings for the watch. The horns are a way to signal rangers returning, wildlings attacking, or the others appearing, God forbid. forbid. It's a communication tool for the watch, essentially. For the free folk, the horns signal dread. Their sworn enemies are nearby and communicating with each other. And those two horn blasts might mean their deaths. It might mean that they have been spotted. And then George, of course, switches that horny, is that the right word, dynamic, up in John's final two *A Clash of Kings chapters, with the wildling band using hunting horns to track and chase corn Halfhand down in the frost fangs. Here at the Blackwater, the sound of horns going off as serpents across the water doesn't strike me as a reader as particularly good, right? It's... it's uh, villain code i know i don't know if that's the right word exactly but it, it's something that your auditory like you're like okay yeah they're, they're sounding like serpents that's, that's not necessarily good it, it makes it makes me think of last week's chapter on sansa 5 with her hearing the sounds of battle knowing subconsciously that she and the rest of the people behind the walls of king's landing are in danger of what those sounds signal the possibility of getting roughed up by a soldier at at the best case scenario, or raped, or murdered by the attackers that are being driven into the city by Stannis. But that sound means quite the opposite to Davos. Their signals for movement to achieve victory for Stannis, Davos, and his sons. George Loves to do this. I think he does this really, really effectively, in that he constantly adjusts how we as readers perceive what we see and hear in A *Song of Ice and Fire*. And he uses his point of view characters to great effect to accomplish this recontextualization over and over again. And here, in the most present moment, of course, of the black war between Sansa and Davos and the Horns.
1: I think you're so right. It's you know they're achieving victory for Stannis, but also at a very intimate cause. This is the only way Davos's family can move forward, and those two are kind of, it's an uneasy coexistence for Davos right now. You know, his his ship, his fleet, they're uniting as one to serve Stannis. But Davos only feels kind of half on board with that cause at this point. As the orders come back from the fury, he feels his phantom fingertips twitch. And that sums up both what Stannis gave him and also what he took away. And both come together at the Battle of Blackwater. As at Storm's End, Davos is drawn back into the past, forced to take stock of the full sweep of his life, and now that it has led him to these moments of crisis. At Storm's End, he remembered how as a smuggler, he had risked his neck to save lives at Storm's End, and now as a lord, he brings only death. King's Landing is just as personal for Davos, but in a different way. Storm's End is where his life changed. This is where his life began. Before he ever invented the name Seaworth for his sons and grandsons, he was Davos of Fleabottom, living one step ahead of the law. Unlike all the noble-born POV characters, Davos sees King's Landing not as the seat of government to fight over, but as a place where people live and love and die. That perspective informs his understanding of the changes Tyrion has made, as we'll get into later in the episode. But it also informs his understanding of war itself. His sons long for battle. They long for glory because they want to prove themselves as members of the nobility, as members of House Seaworth. They see only the sail and close their eyes to the onion. As Dabo said, they only see where we are and not how I got us there. His view of the war machine is that of a smuggler who is used to avoiding conflict. Young noblemen like Davos' sons or Edmure or the Knights of Summer can think only of battle because, you know, that's really their only profession. Davos had to work for a living, so from his perspective, combat is a nasty bit of business that, like, ruins your cargo and throws <laughs> off your whole schedule. Alas, it is Davos' dread that proves correct, rather than his son's enthusiasm. Coming home to King's Landing feels like his noble pretensions have been stripped away. The battle is a crucible that takes everything away from him.
0: I think a, a trope we often see in, with warfare, especially in the cinematic and novelistic approaches to it, is of the excited young men eager to prove themselves in war. And of course, you have the war-weary old men or sergeants who are once more into the breach because it's their duty. Now, George plays with this trope with Davos taking on the role of the war-weary old man. But as you're saying, you know the emotional heart of Davos's conflict is over duty and ambition. Also, Davos is not all that old. Davos believes that his duty lies with Stannis, but it's a duty that Davos takes on due to his ambition and because Stannis has raised him up. He's rewarding Stannis's, you know, treatment of him with good behavior and with loyal and leal service, despite all of the things that are kind of in the back of his mind, going, "No, this is bad." I think often like when we think about ambition, it tends to get coded as a negative character trait for characters. But I I disagree that ambition is an inherently bad thing. Davos' is proof of ambition not being that inherently bad thing. He wants his sons and grandsons to rise high through his service and duty. Davos wants them to have better lives than he had when he feared that one son, Allard, might end up on the wall rather than commanding a ship in Stannis' royal navy. Now, this might be a little bit off kilter, and I'm not sure this is exactly what George is going for, but this is what I felt when I was reading this portion of Davos 3. I get the feeling of a lot of these guys from World War II who are, went off to serve stints in the service to earn the GI Bill, VA housing loans, and lived comfortable middle-class lives and passed that lifestyle onto their boomer kids, such as George R. R. Martin, whose father was, uh, was a World War II veteran. That feels like Davos Seaworth to me. The trade-off for the World War II generation and for Davos Seaworth is that they have to serve on behalf of a flawed institution, the United States, of course, and Stannis Baratheon. And of course, they also have to survive and win a war in order to provide for their boomer kids or their Seaworth kids. And that whole surviving the war thing seems less certain with the command team in charge of this operation.
1: Yep. In the show, Stannis put Davos in command of his fleet for the battle. I understand why. The show didn't have really room for tertiary characters, especially early on. That meant, however, stripping away an interesting and important dynamic from this chapter. Davos' perspective on his commander, Imri Florent. I'm sorry, Lord High Captain, Sir Imri Florent. At this point in his story, Stannis has yet to promote Davos above his noble-born peers. That only happens in a storm of swords, after his setbacks. As it stands, Stannis is now surrounded by Renly's former supporters, as we saw at Storm's End in Davos 2. He needs them, that's what he told Davos. So the politics of his coalition led Stannis to promote his brother-in-law. That turns out to be a terrible decision <laughs> because Emory Florent is an incompetent commander. And I will leave the military specifics to Jeff because he, he uh, knows more what he's talking about and
0: says it so well. You're, you're so generous calling Emory Florent an incompetent commander because he is just the fucking worst commander uh, uh, uh. that we see in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. I will stake my reputation on that right now. But yes, okay, fine. Let's talk about strategy with my reluctance, with me talking about it, with the reluctance of a cop on his last day on the job getting too old for this shit. I mean, seriously, my first essay about Rob Stark as a military commander was back in 2013, 2020. I'm, I'm teasing, obviously. This is so much fun for me to actually talk about. But <sighs> Stannis Baratheon, what the hell are you doing And the, as the overall strategic theater commander here? As you were referencing before, let's start with the obvious nepotism at work. Emery Florent is introduced as Selyse Baratheon's brother, and he has a sir in front of his name. Those appear to be the only qualifications that Emery Florent has, and it just drives me bananas. Has he commanded a fleet before? Has he ever been aboard a ship before this moment? I mean, maybe his Brightwater keep is relatively close to the Sunset Sea and also is at the headwaters of the Honeywine and Mander Rivers back in the Reach, maybe he has some experience. But we don't know that. Does he know what bow and stern mean? Port and starboard. Does he read maps and know that obviously the blue part on it means land? Little joke there. If there's one virtue to Stannis, it's his limited meritocratic view of promoting people despite their status. Like Davos, a smuggler who became a knight, who became a lord, who became a hand. Or I guess John, a little bit lesser of an example, who was a bastard who Stannis wanted to legitimize and name Lord John Stark of Winterfell. But again, it's much more limited than the Stannermen would lead us to believe. And we see that with Sir Emery Florence's appointment to command. That said, even if Stannis wanted to put a nobleman in charge of the naval portion of the battle and the attack on King's Landing, Stannis had a set of noblemen who could command the attack. Stannis has seasoned fleet commanders that could work as subordinate commanders. Davos Seaworth is often mentioned as one such commander. And Yolkboy from Radio Westeros, our friend over there, has suggested that Seladar San is another potential commander. Now, I really like Boy's suggestion of Saldur-san, but I understand why Stannis didn't select him. He's a Lyseni, and that would have undercut Stannis with his subordinate lords, ones that have only recently joined Stannis' cause. And with Davos, look, I know it's not right, but I get it. Within a feudal Westerosi context, he's a lowborn, up-jump smuggler. Plus, he's never had naval command experience, as he talks about in this chapter. So I would offer the alternative of narrow sea lords who live their lives on islands and aboard ships. You got Lord Ardrian Celtigar, or better yet, Lord Monford Valerian, a descendant of the Sea Snake, who seems to have a knack for initiative and strategic thinking. He, after all, urged stands to go right for King's Landing rather than attack Storm's End. Plus, he's got Aurain Waters for a bastard half-brother who does participate in the battle. So, you know, Monford is crafty or crafty adjacent, and he's just my type. Anyways, I digress. Let's talk about this fucking shit plan. Oh my god. Because boy, when I was writing this back like on, on Saturday night, I was a little drunk and a lot a bit angry on behalf of the Baratheon sailors and soldiers who all died in the Blackwater rush for fuck all. Now, I'll talk about what I would do where I in command of the Baratheon fleet at the end of this episode. So here, I'm just going to dunk on Sir Emery Florin and then on Stannis as well for about 5-10 minutes or so. So strap in. First, let's talk about the plan in pure military terms. The overall task and purpose is straightforward. Task, they're taking King's Landing. Purpose, seat Stannis onto the Iron Throne. That's simple enough, but there are a lot of supported tasks and purposes to that. Like if we were doing like this as a, like a warfighter exercise, I'd have a lot of nerdy military shit to say about this plan that would leave you all intermittently bored and listless, but I will spare you that and make it interesting to t- and talk about two major subordinate tasks and two major supported purposes. Task one, they need to defeat the Lannister fleet. Purpose, to clear the way for Stannis' army to make it across the Blackwater Rush. Task task 2. They need to ferry Stannis' army across the Blackwater Rush and provide support by fire to Stannis' army assaulting the walls. Purpose 2. This allows the main element to attack the walls of King's Landing, to breach the gates, and allow the flow of the main element into the city itself. Here's the thing. What the fleet is doing is a shaping operation. That is that they are preparing the battlefield for the main or decisive element to perform the decisive operation of attacking and seizing King's Landing. So, let's turn to the tactics that, tactics in quotation marks, that Embry employs to accomplish these tasks and purposes. Emory divides his fleet into four echelons, the forward line of 20 ships commanded by Emory aboard the Fury, the second line of 20 ships in command of Davos, I guess, the third echelon of 20 ships per line that would bring archers and spearmen to the north bank of the Blackwater and the rear guard commanded by Salador San. All ships are supposed to move in a straight line with the idea to sweep the Lancer fleet from the waters and provide deck-mounted support by fire once the transport ships dock in the harbor and gain their foothold on the north bank of the Blackwater Rush. That seems sensible, right at first blush. The problem, though, is the geography. Now, I spent a fair time looking over a map of King's Landing from the Lands of Ice and Fire, and I'm flabbergasted by this shit-fucking plan. Flabbergasted all over again. Like I, I, I felt emotional as I was as I was going through this. So let's let's talk about the plan in in, in a in a vacuum, in the Narrow Sea or Blackwater Bay. These tactics they make some sense. The Lancer fleet is smaller, so Emery can use his first line of 20 ships to pin the Lannister fleet while the edges of the front line can turn the flanks of the Lancer Navy and defeat them quickly. Or they can use the front line to suppress the Lannister fleet while the second line splits off to one or both flanks and assaults through the smaller Lancer fleet, ramming or boarding ships that are already engaged with the first line of ships. But in a goddamn river, Emory is negating the tactical advantage of the larger fleet by constraining them within the far narrower Blackwater... Okay, I'm going to stop yelling. In the far narrower Blackwater Rush. Davos notes how close the front line and his line of ships are together, and they're doing just a full frontal assault with no maneuver space to turn the flanks of the Lannisters. The Lannister fleet can meet the Baratheon fleet and defeat them in detail, and it's only fortunate that the better leadership and ships of the Baratheon fleet defeats the Lannisters or pushes them farther up the river. But now that everyone is bunched up, and that leads inevitably to the wildfire, which we'll, of course, be covering next week. Next, Emory opts for a basic movement to contact battle drill and that he's moving his fleet into battle without knowing the disposition of the enemy ahead of him. Now, I'm not a sailor and my tactical knowledge is entirely infantry based, but movement to contact is typically used when you don't have the time to, or ability to conduct a reconnaissance of an area in order to do a prior to your attack. Davos being much more fair than me concedes that Emry Florent is facing an obstacle in time to move the fleet into action. But I actually disagree with Davos' assessment. Emory did not need to keep all his ships anchored in Shipbreaker Bay for the weeks that Stannis took to take Storm's End. He could have dispatched ships up from Shipbreaker to Blackwater to determine the defensive posture of King's Landing prior to the moon of the main element. What? Fucking fleet was potentially on its way to lift the blockade and attack Stannis at Storm's End. You don't need 200 ships, 200 plus ships at Blockade Storm's End or Capella to surrender either. Just, ah! Okay, okay. I'm over it. I'm over it. No, I'm not. Ah! God damn it. <laughs> <sighs> yes, they knew about Tyrion's chain for, for reasons that we're going to talk about in a moment. But they had no idea about anything else. Maybe they could have determined that the Lancers had trebuchets that could throw projectiles at the fleet moving into the rush. And maybe that would have deterred them from the attack direction directly into the kill zone within range of those trebuchets which are sitting on Visenya's hill. But they didn't and they settled on one plan without any modification. The final piece of it, settle down here for a second, is the amphibious assault on the north bank of the Blackwater. Now, this is a spot that makes tactical sense to me. They need to establish a foothold on the north bank of the Blackwater in order to hold the docks for the main element to cross the river from south to north in order to hit the gates to prevent the Lancers from pushing cavalry out to sweep the army back into the river. There are two major problems with this plan, though. The first is that the Baratheon fleet is sailing against the current of the Blackwater Rush. That is that the water is flowing west to east, and this slows the movement and forces the Baratheons to use sails and oars to get into the river. Moreover, it places the Lancers in the position of using the current to their advantage. That is, they are able to increase their speed and maneuverability in the constrained space of that river. More important than that, though, is the fact that there is no landing. Tyrion has burned the docks and suburbs along the Blackwater back in Tyrion 10. Maybe Sir Emery Florent would have known this had he done a fucking recon of King's Landing before rolling up onto it. And now that the docks are gone, the Baratheon third line will improvise on the spots we'll talk about next week and beach their ships on the north bank and try for a straight-up Omaha Beach amphibious assault to seize their toehold on the north bank. I mean, props to whoever was in charge of the third line. That's awesome improvisation. Give that Admiral Ranger Tab, or I guess a less or a less prestigious Eagle Globe and Anchor emblem. A little inner service joke for y'all. MVP's landings are really hard to do. You are vulnerable on the crossing of the river and you are vulnerable as you attempt to make it onto shore as your mobility is limited as you move through the water to the land. Oh, and you're also weighed down by your armor, weapons, and the pack that you're carrying. And you're also under fire from archers, scorpions, catapults, and the trebuchets that are on Vicenius Hill. And then the problems get even worse. Oh my gosh. <sighs> As you come onto land, you're coming on not as a mass formation, but as individuals. So you're exposed, vulnerable, and operating independently until you can actually mass together. The Lancers can charge cavalry across the narrow strip of land and kill the Baratheons before they can mass together, which is exactly what Sander Cogaine does, as we'll talk about next week. So putting an advance party on the North Bank is conceptually smart, but it is strongly recommended that you have a harbor for ships to, off, to dock, dock at in order to offload Archers and Spearmen to establish that foothold on the North Bank of the Blackwater. This doesn't occur because the docs aren't there. They should have known that ahead of time and would have had they done the bare minimum of scouting ahead of time. All of this is criminally poor planning. And yes, Sir Embry Florent deserves a lot of blame for this. But let's not kid ourselves here. The buck stops with Stannis Baratheon. In one of our Davos 2 episodes, contrarian that I was, I argued on behalf of Stannis deciding to take Storm's End first rather than rush up to King's Landing. But you really see the fallout from that decision here. Embry Florent had to rush the fleet up to Blackwater Bay, didn't have the time to conduct a re- reconnaissance, and didn't make adjustments to the battle plan accordingly. I, I kind of wonder whether part of this is due to the Florents coming late to Stannis' cause as they had been Renly loyalists before Storm's End. Perhaps Sir Embry Florent, if he had doubts about Stannis' strategic plan, and-, and it's not clear at all that he did, didn't have the standing to suggest a different plan to Stannis given that he wasn't a supporter of the king prior to when it became politically expedient for him to support Stannis. Back in Davos 2, Stannis was all about fixing his newfound noble spores with hard stares and harsh words, reminding them of their place, and talking with Davos about how they all should have been executed for their treasons. Moreover, all of those stares and snapping words came when they suggested different courses of action in dealing with Sir Courtney Penrose. Were you one of those former Renly loyalists, you'd probably be disinclined to suggest a different plan, as it might be your neck on the chopping block of someone who Catelyn described as notoriously without mercy. As we said back in Davos 2, Stannis' new vassal lords are indeed shitheel assholes who are dumb and spineless pots of unethical behavior. So we, of course, sympathize with Stannis, dismissing these idiots as chattering magpies. But at the same time, we noted in those Davos 2 episodes that Stannis is only telling these lords and knights that they suck and to shut up, but he's not doing anything else. That creates an atmosphere of simping fear for these lords, and more importantly, it doesn't improve them or make them better leaders for the battle to come. And Stannis needs these guys to be better leaders for the battle to come. That's entirely on Stannis. And in a modern context, we call what Stannis does as a, quote unquote, toxic command climate. There's a, in the, in the news, you may have seen this, but there's a recently released uh, Fort Hood report for a really modern, shameful example of a very recent toxic command climate at some of the highest leadership levels of the United States Army. It's linked to it for our patrons. You can go ahead and read that, but you can also Google it and find it and read it on your own. It's about 124 pages. It's a, it's a, it's a very good read, very sad and devastating read as well. More importantly than the political elements, Sir Emery didn't, simply didn't have the time because Stannis stalled at Storm's End. And the reason he stalled, as he put it so well in Davos 2, was because Storm's End was vitally important to mostly Stannis' ego. Finally taking the castle that was his by rights, even if there was some strategic and tactical sense in having a castle for reasons of having a line of supply and retreat from King's Landing 2. It's always time with Stannis and he never has enough. I, I think about it, Dance of Dragons, as i have to do as you do as well when stannis made a bat- made a campaign and had just enough time to make adjustments to the plan with jon snow's aid to achieve victory at deepwood Mott and potential victory at winterfell too that was the only time that stannis had the time necessary to make a pretty good battle and campaign plan but again it's really the only time that we know in the narrative that he that this is possible here in A Clash of Kings, Stannis Baratheon is hamstrung by time. He doesn't have enough of it. And the reason he doesn't have enough time is because of his own decisions. I, I rest my case. Is that how we say it? I don't know.
1: Woo! Beautifully done, sir. That was, that was terrific. I think you made the, the prosecutor's case against Imri Florent on every angle. Well done, sir. That was great. Even if all that strategy goes right over your head, though, you can just tell from how George writes this chapter that Imri Florent sucks at his job. I think the author wants military neophytes to be able to pick up on that, too. As the chapter begins, Davos keeps mentioning this Imri fellow we've never heard of before. Every paragraph seems to end with his name. Davos brings up an obstacle and thinks, here's what Imri's doing about that, I guess. (laughs) This is a clever way of expressing Davos' doubts about Imri's competence. It's not at the forefront of his mind, because he has a job to do, but it is in the back of his mind, eating away his confidence and fueling his dread, just like his doubts about Stannis back at Storm's End. Davos was uncomfortable with that feeling, and the same holds true here. Davos is accustomed to bowing and scraping before his rightful lord and now rightful king. So he doesn't even want to think the thought, Stannis screwed up by putting this (laughs) asshole in charge. He has these doubts, he calls them grave doubts, which is a hint from George that these doubts are going to in fact lead to the grave. But Davos externalizes these doubts onto the ship, the Swordfish, and her captain. Of course, Davos is right to worry specifically about the swordfish, as we will see next week, but George describes the swordfish the same way he describes Imri's flagship, the Fury. Both ships are are too heavy, they're overloaded and they're lagging behind. I think George is being sneaky. He's having Davos describe his doubts about Imri Florent, with the pretense of it being about the captain of the swordfish. The swordfish is top-heavy because of its ram. Its captain winds up triggering the wildfire explosion because he desperately wants to prove that ram is useful, that it was worth bringing along and throwing everything off. That's what Imri is doing with the fleet as a whole, charging ahead to destruction driven by a childish desire to hit something hard. How ironic that Imri mocks Joffrey for his immaturity, calling his ships the boys' toys, when he, a grown-ass adult, has the same character flaw. Imri is associated with the soldiers currently taking up space on the ships. Davos notes how they just get in the way of sailors like him. They're ballast at this point, and they're eager to get into a position where they can fight and kill. As Davos says, Imri feels the same way, and that's his fatal flaw. He's more interested in seeming like a winner than in sensible strategy that will actually advance the overall goal. Just look at how he paces the deck of the Fury in his glittering armor, as showy as his uncle Alistair at Storm's End. Davos is dressed simply and lightly because they're about to, you know, fight a naval battle and he doesn't want to increase his odds of sinking. We've already seen this vanity turn lethal at the Battle of Camps in Book 1. Tyrion thought the same as Davos, albeit more sardonically wondering if the Lord Brax had felt especially gallant as the weight of his armor pulled him to his death. Even before the battle begins, George gives us a little case study to demonstrate both Davos's intelligence and Imri's foolishness. On their way north, the Baratheon fleet came across some fishing boats. One by one, they were taken and boarded. Imri calls this a small spoonful of victory that will make his men eager for the real deal, like he's the Mary Poppins of war. Fuck yourself. Like so many (laughs) members of Team Renly, Imri cares only about the surface, not at all about what lies beneath it. There's nothing inspiring about a military fleet overwhelming fishermen. Imri calls it a victory, but I wouldn't even call it a battle in the first place. Davos understands that the utility of capturing those ships is not the glory of doing so, but the military intelligence to be gained from interrogation. The fishermen tell the Baratheon captains about Tyrion's chain boom. Davos recognizes this as vital information, though he misinterprets it. Imri doesn't even get that far. There's no indication he takes this information into account. Davos is reduced to hoping the Blackwater is closed against them so that Imri has to pause and rethink his approach. Think about that. Davos is hoping that the enemy's strategy succeeds. That's how bad things are at the top for Team Stannis right now. Leadership is so incompetent that the most loyal supporter Stannis has finds himself hoping for failure to force his commander's hand. (laughs) When Davos brings his concerns to Emery, he runs up against the class barrier that has defined both his old life and his new life in different ways. As a smuggler, the lords took no notice of him. He was beneath their attention, beneath their empathy. The only interaction would be execution. As a knight, Sir Davos of House Seaworth officially has a seat at the table, but more often than not, especially when Stannis isn't around, that's all it amounts to, a seat at the table. He's a mute witness to power. He's not allowed to actually have an impact on policy. To put his hard-won expertise to use for his king, he is still considered a lesser man. Imri is polite ...to Davos's face. That is the sum total of what Davos has earned from his noble-born peers... ...that they barely restrain their contempt. Imri's eyes tell the truth. Like Davos's sons, Imri considers Davos' caution to be a mark of cowardice... ...rather than intelligence, a sign of his shameful peasant roots... The same prejudice is at work in Imri's dismissal of Salador-san. Look, I, I get that Salador is a pirate, but remember how these guys were just working for Renly like a month ago? None of them are exactly more trustworthy than him. Ultimately, what this is about is that Salador just doesn't fit in with Imri Florent. And if you don't fit in with Imri Florent, he doesn't think you have much of a part to play.
0: Yeah, and and throughout much of human history, armies and navies weren't commanded by the best suited people. They were typically commanded. They're typically command positions conferred upon the wealthy who earned their rank by their wealth and or aristocratic status, often at the same time. The thinking went that it was only the wealthy who had the time and education to lead, and that thinking is well, it didn't work out a lot of the time. Let's put it that way. And in a American context, one that George is familiar with, we can look at the American Civil War as a spot where wealthy men often purchased their rank and command positions. We've got people that purchased whole regiments worth of men and paid them out of pocket because they had the wealth and means to do so. Uh, prominent example of this is one of my favorite, favorite Americans in terms of like the most interesting Americans, but it's this guy, it's a New Yorker by the name of General Daniel Sickles, formerly Congressman Daniel Sickles. Now, if you've never read up on Daniel Sickles and who he was, boy, you got to at least read the wiki, wiki entry on this guy. He was a trip. He was born into a wealthy New York family. He was a congressman and a murderer who pleaded temporary insanity after he murdered his wife's lover, who was actually the son of Francis Scott Key, the guy who wrote The Star-Spangled Banner. And then using his money and connections, he joined the Union Army in 18 1861. And this line from from the wiki entry is an excellent summation of his career. Despite Sickles' lack of military experience, he served as a brigade, division, and corps commander in some of the early Eastern campaigns. His military career ended at the Battle of Gettysburg in July 1863, after he moved moved his third corps, without orders, to an untenable position where his corps was decimated, yet slow General Longstreet's flanking mover. He was wounded by cannon fire and had to have his leg amputated. He was eventually awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions. In the immortal words of someone who I serve with who remain absolutely anonymous in this organization, fuck up, move up. So all of this history is interesting in and of itself. But I think what Martin does with Emory is play on the history and show us yet another example of the failure of feudalism as a way to organize governance in society. For every Ned Stark, Baylor Breakspear, or Aegon V who inherited their position from their birth and, and did well at it, you have counterparts. You've got Roose Bolton, Aegon IV, or the II who inherited their power and positions and suck. Most of us modern readers of A Song of Ice and Fire ideologically oppose feudalism for how it undemocratically tramples the small folk and creates a protection bracket source to violence. Now, ideology is important, but when you get down to the base of it, feudalism ends up killing people it shouldn't, even if that killing isn't coming down from the arm of an evil lawyer king like Roose Bolton or Aegon IV. Sir Emery Florin is not the best man suited for this command billet, but he's got the job, and that results in a lot of people getting killed unnecessarily. And these, people's, and these people die because Emery doesn't have to listen to the son of a crabber who is a criminal. He's Sir Emery fucking Florin. His line can be traced back to the Garter Kings. But let's unabstract this even further. The people who this nepotism, social snobbery, and feudalism kill have names in the book. It's Dale Seaworth, it's Allard Seaworth, it's Matho Seaworth, it's Merrick Seaworth, for a start. These men died because of feudalism. And, you know, ultimately, Sir Emery Florent died, too, as a result of his own incompetence and because of his bloody, awful plan that he refused to modify after a seasoned sailor in the form of Davos gave him advice and a better plan. Feudalism ultimately eats its own, and I submit that more people dying than should is as good as any reason to oppose this or any shitty political system.
1: And I think Davos would have difficulty disagreeing with you, but at the same time, we'd be like, well, how else, what am I supposed to do with my sons? Like, what yeah. am I supposed to do with my family? I'm kind of in. And I think, again, like, I think that's a very relatable struggle. I think I've I've encountered that with people in, in modern day who like who, like, you know, tell me, like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't agree with what the government is doing in this regard. I think my boss is an idiot. I think that the system I'm raising my kids in is kind of awful if I think about it for too long, but what else am I supposed to do? And Davos is kind of when we get to a storm of swords, Davos is kind of forced to answer that question. Okay, I have to find a new way to live and a new way to relate to my politics and a new way to relate to my values. But you know that wouldn't that wouldn't hit quite as home if we didn't didn't get the, the the sheer visceral awfulness of what happens here. And Davos, you know, he feels almost like a passenger in this part of the chapter, as he's, he's, he's just the ships are just just you know flying ahead, flying into ahead the battle. Davos describes the sea as being full of sound. It's the same emphasis on the auditory that we talked about in Sansa five. The drums beat, the oars slap the water, and Stannis' men on the southern shore blow their trumpets amidst all the shouting on the ships. Davos offers a silent prayer for luck this quiet little intimate moment in the midst of all of that large-scale noise, Davos is, is rung free of the bravado that characterizes the summer nights. Davos' gods burned in his first chapter. He saw them replaced in his second chapter with Melisandre beneath Storm's End. He no longer knows the words to keep him safe, so his prayer has to be silent. In some ways, this chapter feels like the fire equivalent to the ice chapter of Sam retreating from the Fist of the First Men and the White Walkers and the Storm of Swords, Sam is reduced in that chapter to repeating Mother have mercy, but he knows the Mother has no power beyond the wall where the old gods rule. And Davos too is bereft of the smiling, comforting faces of the Seven, because he is lost in the domain of a different god. All he can do is reach for the finger bones around his neck. That's his true religion. Stannis raised me up and redeemed my life. I delivered mercy and sacrificed part of myself for the future of my family. Davos, much like Quentin Martell, has to believe that the sacrifices so far have been worth it. And like Quentin, he ends up sacrificing even more to the fire. George keeps the focus on Davos' fingers. Shout out to one of our great fellow uh, Song (laughs) of Ice and Fire uh, podcasts. When we get to the Blackwater Rush itself. Davos is bewildered by the new stone towers. He says, it's as if, he says it's as if his hand has sprouted two extra fingers. It's as though he's gone back in time to before his fingers con- got cut off. Right, He's back in King's Landing, which is where he was as a young man before Storm's End. And now the fingers are suddenly back. It's an appropriate feeling for a homecoming. Davos' home has been changed. His old life is unfamiliar to him. He can't recognize his environment. He sacrificed his fingers for a new life, but now those fingers have, metaphorically, grown back, and they are ushering them to their doom. Davos sees that Tyrion has thought through every detail, constructing the towers so as to make it very difficult for Stannis to take them.
0: Yeah, and I think we were talking about this in in either one of our pre or post episodes for Sansa 5 or maybe Tyrion 12 even, where we were both excited to find things we hadn't seen previously. And those winch towers were one such spot for me. I mean, previously I wrote about how Stannis failed to take the initiative at the Blackwater by seizing the winch tower on the southern bank of the Blackwater. And this is what allowed the chain boom to be raised behind his fleet, trapping them in a green hell. But here I actually finally saw what kept Stannis from taking that tower. It's our old friend geography as Davos thinks. Shading his eyes against the westerling sun, Davos peered at those towers more closely. They were too small to hold much of a garrison. The one on the north bank was built against the bluff with the Red Keep frowning above. Its counterpart on the south shore had its footing in the water. They dug a cut through the bank, he knew at once. That would make the tower very difficult to assault. Attackers would need to wade through the water or bridge the little channel. So for our patrons who can read our show notes we post every Monday after the main release of our episode, I've, I have posted an image of one that i Seemingly looks very similar to what I think what Davis was looking at as he was coming up the Blackwater Rush. It's, it's the Vivari Channel in the, in the country of Albania, which I don't know if it was or not, but it may have served as, as an inspiration for George for the Tower on the Southern Bank and on the Northern Bank too. But it would have been, but it would not have been easily possible to take the tower given the flowing water and the small channel linking the tower to the land. It's constraining your geography. It's really hard to actually take a tower and move siege engines in there to actually get up to the very top of it in order to seize it. Stannis had archers positioned to shoot arrows at the men in the tower who popped up, but that was not also easily to take. And he chose he chose not to take in, in a difficult building to take. Had Stannis known what Tyrion was planning, I, I imagine that Stannis would have never stopped attacking the Winch Tower until it was taken, though.
1: I think you're totally right. And Davos, you know, he, he also glimpses the chain itself. He sees some light glinting off the chain beneath the water. It's, it's just they've left it there. It's lurking motionless. The Lannisters have left the river open to us. Why? Davos senses a trap. And the first time Reader probably does, too. But neither of us have enough information to put it all together until it's too late. There's the idea in comedy that, like, a perfect punchline is one that the audience figures out, like, right, right after the comic says it. Like, you know, a joke is, like, so well-constructed, it's leading right to the punchline, and then there's this, like, shock of surprise as the comedian gets to it right before you figure it out. Like, that's the ideal. And it's the same structure here. George shows us what's coming in bits and pieces. So when the trap closes, we feel both shock and comprehension. We didn't see this coming, but when all the elements are revealed to us, we go, oh, of course... That's the holy grail when you, when you get your audience to say, what? Uh? You know, you don't want just that. You we want, want them to say, oh, of course, as it settles in and everything makes sense. That's what George also pulls off with the Red Wedding. And I think he's doing a, a similar kind of slow burn, long con thing here with Tyrion, his chain, and of course, the cachet of wildfire, as we will get into next week. To shift now into foreshadowing and groundwork, while Davos, I think, rightfully considers Salador and his ships wasted in the rear, this does allow them to mostly survive the wildfire and ferry Stannis and some of his men back to Dragonstone. It also means that one of Salah's ships is still around in the area to save Davos from his rock after the battle. So there's something kind of ironic there. I think, you know, Davos has his reasons to wish Salah was more in the thick of it, but if they had been, they all would have died and they never would have been able to save him.
0: And Salador's son wouldn't have had free reign in order to conduct piracy off the Narrow Sea, as Stannis grants him in, in his Storm of Swords. So he Admiral of Blackwater He's, Bay. That's what Salador gets. Admiral. Okay. Well, I mean, it all came as a result of of, of this plan of having his his ship stay behind. Sure. So, so good on Salder's son. Uh, you know, Davos is, is thinking in this chapter about how Salador's son is. Probably a little bit upset about not being in the battle and gaining any of the glory in order to take take King's Landing. I'm not entirely sure that's actually Salvador San's perspective here, as uh, you know, as, as uh, Brown Ben Plums says oftentimes uh, about cell swords. There are no old cell swords or bold cell swords. Excuse me, there are old bold cell. There are old cell swords and there are bold cell swords. There are no old bold cell swords, and I think that works well for for cell sales too. Uh, Leader in the Dance of Dragons, Quentin Martell. Who we were referencing before will compare Danny's dragon Viserion to a great green serpent. I was thinking about this too when you were talking about the war horns earlier, and I was thinking maybe the war horns sounding like serpents as they approach King's Landing is a subtle allusion to the dragons returning to the city of King's Landing. I, I don't know if this is a stretch necessarily. And please let me know in the comments if you think it is, but it was, it was something I thought
1: about. No, maybe. I think that works. I mean, Stannis is kind of, as we've said before, is kind of the. The like the the dry run for Danny, you know what I mean, the dress rehearsal for Daenerys's story is Stannis in a lot of ways, and you know he has like he has his black shadow babies, which are kind of like uh, Drogon, a black shadow like Balerion, but like uh, you know Stannis's shadows are thin and substantial. They fade. They're not like a dragon that you can ride into battle. And similarly, like oh Stannis can make the sound of dragons <laughs> with his war horns, but it's not the real thing. So actually, I think that makes perfect sense. I think George is, is thinking that through. On on, on a lot of different details, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case. So, moving us on into our discussion portion of the episode. We talked about, in a previous episode, about what Jeff would do to run the the Battle of Blackwater from the Lannister side, but now to shift over into the side he would actually probably be a part of. (laughs) If Lord (laughs) Jeff Hartline, Sir High Captain Jeff Hartline, was in command of the Baratheon fleet instead of Emory Florent, what, what would you do?
0: Wow, this is this is quite a, a challenge for me. Quite a promotion, uh, I know. Yeah, from from me, I was, I was only a captain in the army as one. Uh, so, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what, how this goes here. So, any asshole can poke holes in a plan. I was that asshole not that long ago. But it takes a special type of asshole to sit there and talk about what they would have done if they were in command. So often it's someone talking about how the Wehrmacht could have defeated the Red Army at Stalingrad or Kursk or how Robert E. Lee could have beaten McClellan at Gettysburg. It's so weird how those assholes are always role-playing the genocidal racist <laughs> side. So, so weird. In this biz, we call these special assholes armchair generals. Hi, as I was referencing before, I'm an armchair asshole this week, but I'm no, I'm not that genocidal racist type of asshole. Thank goodness, I guess. Let's get some caveats out of the way. As I've referenced before, I am not a sailor. I was an infantryman once and young. However, when I was a kid, I used to kayak on the Chesapeake Bay, though. So this gives me all the expertise I need. I'm teasing. What I mean by that caveat is that I am not going to focus on the specific naval maneuvers or even use a lot of naval naval terminology. Additionally, I, I once remember hearing Mike Duncan, I think, of the History of Rome podcast describe Roman naval tactics as the Roman legion on the sea, meaning that the same basic tactics used by the legionary armies on land ended up being replicated on the water. Given how this battle will impact next week as described, I think George roughly hues to this with a touch of magic napalm to give it that fantasy element. And now, constraints. So many of these armchair assholes stack the deck in their favor and ignore the real-world constraints placed on the commanders of various historical battles caused by events that preceded them, or they end up rewriting the background to be in their favor. So I'm basically going to start from the end of the Siege of Storm's End and work our way north to the Blackwater. Hell, I'll... To be so fair, because everyone says that I'm so fair, I'll even forgo my idea of dispatching a small portion of the fleet to scout ahead while Emory Florin blockaded Storm's End, as the beans I suggested before. That out of the way. No shit. There I was, up to my neck in hand grenade pins, as Sir Emory of House Florin aboard the Deck of the Fury in the year 299 AEC. Recon. So, we haven't sent ships north to the Blackwater yet, but now we're moving up to the Blackwater Bay. That's okay. I know I have a slow. I know I have slow large galleys and plenty of faster ships. So I start to get into some task organization of my fleet. I place my fast movers at the front of the formation and push them ahead to scout out the Blackwater Rush to find out things like you know if there's a train, chain boom ahead. Find out things like what is Tyrion's defensive posture, what is the weaponry on the walls, and the disposition of the ports that we're supposed to land at. These scouts would then report back saying that the original plan is shit and it's not going to work out in its current form. I have a few weeks of hard sailing ahead of me when my scouts return, so I get a message off to Stannis, marching up the King's Road with the information, and Stannis agrees with my assessment and asks, asks for a fragor to modify the original plan. Am I being a gigantic hypocrite and stacking the deck in my favor, as I was referencing before? You bet your ass I am. I am the podcast co-host of the a Cast. Anyways, altering the plan. So here's the overall concept. We are avoiding the Blackwater Rush. So the plan to drive up the Blackwater Rush... Well, So the plan to drive up the Blackwater Rush and land troops to take the docks is shot. We need to figure out a new way into King's Landing. So what are we doing alternatively? What's our alternative here? Time is still vital here, even if we don't know that Tywin and the Tyrells are coming in force from the west. We need to get into King's Landing, but we can't go up the Blackwater Rush easily. Instead, we're mostly avoiding the south altogether. We know that Tyrion has aligned most of his defenses to face the south because our scout reports, which I heroically dispatched, indicated as much. This makes sense as most of Stannis' army is south of the Blackwater Brush. Those men are staying there for the time being to keep Tyrion focused away from my main effort. Wait, the main effort? Absolutely. The decisive effort of this battle is shifting away from the Blackwater Rush. We're going someplace else. Again, I had a good long look at the map of King's Landing from the lands of ice and fire that I actually had laminated back when my brother-in-law gave it to me as a gift back in 2016, I want to say. They're great. I get to like dry erase mark and everything like that. It's, it's totally not nerdy at all. <clears throat> um, and I think I found a good landing spot that takes us away from the constraints of the river and the lack of a harbor. That is northeast along the Rosby Road running southwest to northeast from King's Landing. So we're conducting a nighttime landing northeast of King's Landing far enough away from from Tyrion's trebuchets sitting on Visenya's hill as the ships are a valuable, perhaps the most valuable resource. So now we've landed a few thousand troops northeast of King's Landing while Stannis' army sits on the south bank as well as bait. Keep in mind... Keep those troops in mind and keep in mind their location. They're in the Kingswood with lots of cover and concealment. And now I'm swinging my navy back into Blackwater Bay and fainting towards the Blackwater Rush with my two rows of 40 ships in total, those big galleys that, we, that are in the first two lines of the original battle, using the ship deck, to, ship, ship deck mounted artillery fire, which are the catapults and scorpions, to clear the walls of enemy troops and their own artillery, directing Tyrion's eyes farther towards the east and south. Meanwhile, I'm shuffling my transport ships south to the north shore of the Blackwater Bay to pick up some good lads to transport across Blackwater Bay then outside of Trebuchet Range back to the Rosby Road invasion point. And that's where the fun begins. So we're attacking. So the main idea is that we're attacking King's Landing from multiple fronts. So now Tyrion's defenders are engaged in the south by my navy, with what appears to be Stannis's main host waiting to cross from the south bank to the north bank of the Blackwater. What I'm effectively doing here is I'm creating a lot of smoke and noise to keep Tyrion distracted, and that's when the main effort makes their attack, assaulting two gates to the northeast of King's Landing. That is the Iron Gate and the Dragon Gate. We're attacking two gates, namely to spread out any of Tyrion's garrison that's maybe sitting on the north side of the city. That disperses any of Tyrion's army along the walls, and now it becomes a clock management game for me. Baratheon ground troops need to quickly get up onto the walls of King's Landing with ropes and ladders and seize the gatehouses and turrets overlooking the gates quickly and or move a battering ram quickly to knock down those gates. And this has to happen fast before Tyrion realizes what is happening and pulls his force off the southern defenses and rushes them across the city to the Iron and Dragon gates to repel my attack. Perhaps here, I'd also launch another feint along the southern banks, send a thousand of my guys across the Blackwater Rush in pontoon boats and start making the attack on the walls as a way to keep the ruse alive that the main attack is coming from the south. Okay, I admit, this is not a nice part of my plan because most of these guys are going to fucking die in an attempt to deceive the enemy. But sacrifice is never... How's that phrase go again? Not, not important. So that's basically my plan. Let's talk about like, how I think this would actually go in, in, in a real world setting. Kind of an after action review. In my best case scenario, I've just won the battle for Stannis as his men are now inside the city. And I've got another couple thousand coming across the Blackwater to join in the fray. I keep ferrying men to the North Shore until they're all across and then the city is won for Stannis Baratheon. In a worst-case scenario, what happens is that Tyrion quickly realizes what's up and rushes Sandricle gains to the northeast to put down the attack on the northeast shore, and then I've got two separate elements on the north and south shores cut off from each other and no entry into King's Landing for my army. However... It's my estimation that what would likely occur, the most likely, it's not the best case, not the worst case scenario, would be something of a middle-way scenario. Maybe one of the gates would be taken and there'd be a few thousand Baratheon troops inside King's Landing and they'd have to face down a similarly sized army of defenders. But the Baratheon troops better led and actual soldiers, as opposed to an army of mostly sellswords and poorly trained gold cloaks, would win in a force-on-force street fight as the Lannister defenders within King's Landing are mostly made up of sellswords and gold cloaks. Bronn, as you remember, warned Tyrion that the sellswords would kill for Tyrion, but they aren't going to die for him. And Jocelyn Bywater told Tyrion that if shit went south, most of the gold cloaks would throw down their spears and run. Meanwhile, at best, maybe one boatload of Stannis' army is able to shove off from the north shore of the Blackwater before Tywin Lannister and the Tyrells show up and destroy the Baratheons remaining south of the Blackwater. But then, Tywin and the Tyrells find themselves in similar straits to Stannis' army. They can't easily cross Blackwater Bay as the docks and burbs are now destroyed by Tyrion. Plus, they haven't been working on boats for weeks the way that Stannis' army on the south bank of the Blackwater has. As we learn from Brendan Tully in A Storm of Swords, Tywin and the Tyrells took barges down from the headwaters of Blackwater Rush and then double-timed their cavalry across the south bank of the Blackwater to intercept Stannis before he could get into King's Landing. What that means is that I think in this scenario, Stannis still takes most of King's Landing, save for maybe the Red Keep, while Tywin holds the South Bank. And I think this is great because it creates a delicious irony in that Tywin immediately has to besiege King's Landing to save any of his family who might be holding out in the Red Keep. But he has to build boats, so Tywin becomes Stannis, who is already a Tywin archetype, and you get where I'm going. Anyways, that's my plan for how we actually have won the Battle of the Blackwater for Stannis Baratheon. Mostly. Promote ahead of peers send to Ily ahead of
1: peers. <laughs> Once again, sir, I can only applaud you. That was terrific. And I think you, you know, Davos mentions it very briefly in passing when he thinks, oh, are they going to use the the chain boom to cut the, our fleet in half? I can't see what that would do. We can land just men on the, the northern side. That's slower but safer. And I think that's George kind of kind of nodding in the direction of the kind of strategy you're employing here that, you know, there's this whole other cardinal direction, you guys, you know, north of the city, that is a thing. Obviously, it's much slower. And obviously, you know, as you say, we, we know that the Taiwan and the Tyrells are coming, but it, it does it, it does open up the battlefield and it forces Tyrion to fight a two front war. And even with my very limited military knowledge, I know that that's a good thing. You want to surround your enemy, you want to be able to flank your enemy, you want to be able to have your enemy fight in two directions at once. And that, you know, as, um, Tyrion thinks to himself, and I think Stannis probably knows enough to also realize this, that discipline and morale are so essential to Tyrion's side of the battle. And as he says, once someone breaks, they're all going to start breaking. Stannis, Stannis just needs to make that happen. And getting men inside the city is crucial to making that happen. And I think your, your plan would lead towards that. So I, I think you've deserved your promotion, sir.
0: <laughs> yeah, promote. Yeah, well give earned. Me the, give me the Medal of Honor, just like Dan Sickles, essentially. From, Meritocracy from the for the win. Yeah, well, unfortunately, I am not going to be. I'm not, I'm not Sir Henry Florin, I guess, fortunately, or unfortunately, probably very fortunately, I'm not Sir Henry Um I, I do think that it's uh, it's, it's good to to kind of like talk about these ways and that you can suss out how these pet this battle might go down because. You know, this might be something that George integrates into the Winds of Winter because we know that Aegon is is moving towards King's Landing. We also know that another character, in the form of Daenerys Targaryen, is also moving to King's Landing. So, we could see a, a different type of siege, perhaps several, in in the Winds of Winter or Dream of Spring. Between for for King's Landing again and that's going to lead to all sorts of possibilities because I don't think we're going to have a straight up replay of what Stannis does at the Battle of the Blackwater in winds or dream of spring. But I do think that he has a lot of potential avenues of approach in order to get these various armies into King's Landing. So I'm curious how George is going to do this in in future books uh, of Song of Ice and Fire. Um, maybe he'll adapt some of these plans but of course George being a listener to this podcast will naturally he'll take her advice of course taking notes obviously so it'll be so much fun so I think that's going to wrap us up for this part of A Clash of Kings Davos 3 which is our first part as always thank you so much for listening and thank you to all of you for watching those of you who've been watching we always enjoy your feedback and stuff like that it's awesome and great if you have the chance please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts Google Play SoundCloud Podbean Spotify and as always on YouTube hit a thumbs up subscribe to us on YouTube and hit that alert button to be aware. Of any episode that we're going to be doing, uh, which of course is every night at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Mondays,
1: you can check out our Patreon at patreoncom IAF. You can follow us on Twitter at I A F, or shoot us an email at natacasta.s.o.i.a.f at gmail.com. You can find me at Port on Twitter or at
0: poorquentin.com and you can find me at Brendan Beavish on Twitter, Brendan Beavish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsfightsandfire.wordpress.com.
1: We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Relu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers. Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maryvold, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Heron Hall, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjakut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Goulin de Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderly, Baker of the Fray Pies, Septon, Mowerful Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wielder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Ryan Noy, Forger of the Mighty Hammer and Keeper of the King's Anvil, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mirror Reed, Wielder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Small Paul, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Donatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, Refined Ringler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, Caretaker Thane of the Crossroads, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirates, Lady Carly, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, and Lady Amy Blackfire, Analyzer of Chinese Literature and Dismantler
0: of the Patriarchy. Thank you so much, as always, to all our High Lords and Ladies for your support. Absolutely, thank you also very, very much for all of your support, kind words, messages, and all the great feedback we've been getting on, on our various daily discussions and elsewhere on, and on the non-side. It's been great to be chatting with so many of you out there, and thank you so much for your support. So, join us next week for the second half of a Clash Kings Davos 3, in which uh, you have written here that Tyrion springs the trap for Davos Seaworth. Is that accurate? As I was referencing before at the start of this episode, yes. Of course, Tyrion Lancer is going to spring the trap. Raising the chain after the entire Baratheon fleet was within the waters, and then dispatching wildfire to kill many, many people.
1: The tone is going to shift, folks. The the dread tone in this in this part of the chapter it's kind of buried underneath all the strategy stuff, all the buildup. That kind of comes to the fore. So, I you know I'm looking forward to it as a piece of art, but I I weep for poor
0: Davos and his sons.
1: Going to be a great episode.
0: I look forward to it. So we'll see you all in two weeks' time. If I said two, one next week, because we're actually going to take off for for Christmas for Clash Kings Davos Three Part Two.